Welcome to Voices of Change, a podcast inspired by Alice Dunbar Nelson and brought to you by the Rosenbach in Philadelphia as part of the digital project I Am an American, the authorship and activism of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Voices of Change discusses themes and topics covered in the I Am an American digital exhibition with key figures who are involved in shaping the exhibition's content. Each episode highlights how lessons from the life and work of the Philadelphia-area author, educator, and civil rights activist Alice Dunbar Nelson can inform American society and inspire positive change today. Find the exhibition at alicedunbarnelson.com and learn more about the Rosenbach at rosenbach.org or by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Alex Ames. I am Collections Engagement Manager at the Rosenbach and a member of the I Am an American Exhibition and Program Team. I'm your host for Voices of Change as we share in-depth conversations with some of the many people who brought the I Am an American project to fruition. The I Am an American Digital Exhibition positions Alice Dunbar Nelson as an important figure in queer history an aspect of her life and legacy that emerged through research conducted by scholars, including the exhibition's curators, in Dunbar Nelson's collection of personal papers housed at the University of Delaware Library. Of course, Dunbar Nelson is just one of countless queer people throughout history whose stories have meaning and value and deserve to be told in their full complexity. All too often, however, stories of traditionally marginalized communities, including sexual minorities, do not find a sufficiently prominent place in our narratives of history. Some libraries, archives, and museums work to change that. One such institution is the John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives at the William Way LGBT Community Center in Philadelphia, one of the United States' leading LGBTQ archives. On this episode of Voices of Change, we will discuss the role that libraries, archives, museums, and other collecting institutions can play in preserving, making accessible, and interpreting the stories of LGBTQIA people throughout history. I'm thrilled to be joined by two guests with significant background and experience in this work. Our first panelist, John Andres, is director of the John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives at the William Way LGBT Community Center. He has also worked as a processing archivist at the Kislak Center for Special Collections, Rare Books, and Manuscripts at the University of Pennsylvania, and as head of special collections at Haverford College. He is program co-chair of the Biennial Conference of Quaker Historians and Archivists, is a board member of the Friends Historical Association and the Philadelphia Area Consortium of Special Collections Libraries, and is an organizer of the Pennsylvania LGBT History Network. John holds a Bachelor of Music from Baldwin Wallace College Conservatory of Music, a Master of Arts from Case Western Reserve University, and a Master of Library Science from Indiana University. John is proud to have called Philadelphia home for almost 20 years. He lives in Old City with his partner, Jimmy. John serves on the Rosenbach's Committee of Community Advisors, which was convened to offer guidance on the I Am an American digital project. 
Our other guest today, Ainsley Wynne Aikens, is a Philadelphia-based library and archive assistant from Richmond, Virginia. They earned a Bachelor of Fine Arts in African American Studies from Wesleyan University with concentrated research in mass incarceration and Black studies. Aikens was introduced to records management through an internship at Yale University's Program for Recovery and Community Health. Since moving to Philadelphia, they have worked at the John J. Wilcox LGBT Archives, the Free Library Children's Literature Research Collection, and the Library Company of Philadelphia. They will start their Master's in Library and Information Science at Drexel University in Fall 2020. Thank you so much for participating in this interview today, Ainsley and John. I'd like to start our conversation by learning more about the history and work of archival preservation at the William Way Community Center. John, could you tell us a little bit about the history of the John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives? What are the collection's areas of special strength, and who actually makes use of these holdings? Well, uh, the William Way LGBT Community Center started its life as the Gay Community Center of Philadelphia when it opened its first building back in uh, 1976. It's been through several locations and name changes over the years, but since around 1997 has been known as William Way and has been in its current building on Spruce Street in Center City. The archives has a little more amorphous beginning. Uh, the community center had a library of gay and lesbian books from the start in 1976, which was part of what allowed it to be registered as a nonprofit at a time when gay organizations were considered to be inherently political in nature. But over the years, gradually receiving more materials that took special care and the fact that the center was managing an archive of its own business records, well, an archive gradually emerged from all of that. We got a sort of shot in the arm when local gay rights activist uh, Tommy Abacoli Mecca donated his personal collection of materials on LGBTQ history before leaving Philadelphia and moving to San Francisco in 1990. And ever since then, we've been collecting all manner of materials related to LGBTQ history in the greater Philadelphia area and in some cases beyond. So what is that? That's personal papers of activists and community organizers, uh, such as the late Gloria Casares, who was the city's first director of LGBT affairs or just regular people who lived lives uh, that I believe deserve to be remembered and studied. It's also organizational records from local activist groups or organizations such as the Gay and Lesbian Switchboard of Philadelphia, which was a phone line from the 1970s through the 1990s that would give referrals to those in the community who were in need of information about topics like uh, coming out, finding a gay-friendly doctor, where the gay bars were located, or what was happening in the community on a particular evening. We also have some collections that we have assembled over time, uh, such as a collection of LGBTQ periodicals, like newspapers, magazines, and so on. And that numbers around 3,000 titles of LGBTQ publications. Our users, um, I would say, span the gamut as much as our collections do. We see 
a lot of students, and that ranges from those writing PhD dissertations to undergraduates and even high school and elementary school students, um, say those working on an LGBTQ topic for National History Day. We also get activists who are interested in how their particular issue was approached in earlier times. Uh, artists who are interested in mining the past for the building blocks of their current work, uh, journalists, documentarians, so on. And of course, we just get average community members who maybe want to see the personal ad that they placed in the Philadelphia Gay News 30 years ago and that brought them together with their partner. John, what are the challenges and opportunities of collecting materials related to LGBTQIA plus history? Well, one of the challenges, uh, which I think is also an opportunity, is that throughout much of history, the archives has been really very good at collecting materials related to white cisgender gay men and has been less good at collecting materials related to underrepresented communities within the LGBT community. For us, that means materials of women, people of color, and transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. We're not alone in this predicament. Other LGBTQ archives around the country probably have similar issues. The LGBT community has, of course, over the years, privileged those with more resources over those with who have less. And underrepresented communities have, at times, had a challenge preserving their cultural resources. So the world ends up with fewer materials lasting long enough to be preserved and find their way into an archival repository. Um, there's also the question of who tells your story and who protects your community's cultural treasures. We're sensitive to those questions as well. In some cases, we, we may not be the best place for materials of a community that doesn't trust us or has questions about our own historical practices. But I don't think that absolves us of doing the work to be an anti-racist organization, to be welcoming to all, especially those who have traditionally not been welcomed by all to be building relationships with all the corners of our city's LGBT community. In order to address this, we've applied for and received a number of grants over the past few years, which have been focused on building collections and also building relationships with these underrepresented communities. We did a series of community digitizing days where we've encouraged those from underrepresented communities to bring their personal archival material to the center to be digitized. We would digitize them on the spot, give the materials back to the individuals, also give them a digital copy of their materials on a USB drive. And if they were willing, we'd add a copy to our digital collections. We've also received funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for what they call community-based archives. And this has allowed us to concentrate on uncovering more of the resources that we do have related to underrepresented communities and to also build our collections in these areas going forward by seeking out and purchasing materials that will help us fill in some of the holes we have in the collection. That program uh, has also funded the hiring of interns and community members from underrepresented communities and that helps us to do this work as well. One other grant-funded initiative 
is a small grant that we received from the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which allowed us to, over a year ago, hire Ainsley to process the Anita Cornwall papers, which is, you'll hear, an amazing collection of the personal and literary papers of an important black lesbian feminist who lived here in Philadelphia. I've been especially concerned about the fact that there's really a small number of black and brown young people who go into the fields of archives and history. And we wanted to see with this project, uh, besides doing the processing of the collection, if we could frame it in such a way that we'd get a strong response from queer people of color. And well, I think we did. And that's how we found Ainsley to our great good fortune. Ainsley, describe what it's like to work with a collection of historical papers in an archival environment. How does an archive locate a collection, decide to preserve it, process it, and then finally make it available to the public? Well, with the Anita Cornwell collection, I believe a number of sort of ideal conditions were in place in order for William Way to acquire it. Um, The historian Mark Stein is, of course, affiliated with the William Way Center and the John J. Wilcox Archives, and he did a 1993 interview with Anita in her home, so there was a very important connection there. Uh, When it became necessary for Anita to move into assisted living and this massive collection had to be cleared from her home, it was her lesbian goddaughter, Sharon Hurley, who was taking care of her and who became tasked with those decisions. Um, You know, all of the parties involved knew, of course, that Anita is one of the foremost early and out Black lesbian literary voices, and that she, you know, occupied some celebrity, essentially, in Philadelphia's feminist, activist, and literary circles. They all knew that the John J. Wilcox Archives is essentially the repository for queer life in Philadelphia. Um, So I I can't imagine there was much doubt about the intellectual, social, and cultural value of her papers or their place in the archives. So I'm I'm sure the decision to preserve them was somewhat of a a (laughs) no-brainer. But the papers had to be refrigerated as a precaution just to ensure that there weren't any pests. Um, And of course, there weren't. And then I believe they were held at the center for some time until there was funding for the collection to be processed. And as John said, that came in the form of a grant from Philadelphia's Abolition Society. I had been living in Philadelphia not even one month um, at that point, and I was seeking out LGBTQIA resources and events online, and I came across the internship while scrolling through the William Way Facebook page. So for me, processing the papers has meant learning how to archive and catalog first and foremost, and then gradually learning how I myself archive and catalog, because I realized it's a bit different for every archivist in their own research purposes. And making it accessible has really looked like identifying community groups, um, both online and in person, that value lesbianism and value queer history and value Black history and really seeing what we can do together. Ainsley, I understand that you will soon be starting a graduate program in library and information science. As we mentioned earlier, how did you decide to pursue a career in libraries and archives? And do you conceive of this work uh, that you're doing as a potentially activist enterprise? 
So I was raised in part uh, by my grandmother, Peggy Akins, um, and she was a 35-year school librarian. Um, she taught me to read at a very early age, and she would take me to her library or the public library at least once a week um, from as early as I can remember until about middle school. So although I didn't consciously decide to delve into the field of libraries and archives until 2019, when I think about it, it really doesn't come as a surprise that I've decided to spin my life around books um, and materials. But at the same time, I feel that it's a matter of um, choosing this field because I've always had to curate my life, essentially, um, being someone who is non-binary but is often misgendered as female um, and also being a Black and Indigenous person that is constantly racialized um, and misinterpreted in this world, you learn gradually how to sort of curate yourself and curate your life in order to manifest the opportunities that you need and get access to the spaces that you need. And so I feel like when I decided to major in African-American studies and soon after visiting Ferguson and really understanding more about what is going on in this country in terms of anti-Blackness and capitalism and the spaces that a lot of marginalized Black and brown communities um, are disappeared into or erased from, it feels like working in archives is the space that I need to be in in order to increase some access to different materials and learning opportunities um, in order to tell narratives or find narratives that are stolen from us or don't get talked about. Um, I, I feel like that is really why I'm in the field. Um, and at the same time, it's a very violent space, honestly. Um, a lot of the discoveries that I have made working in early collections, you know, from, you know, 1600s onward, you don't see um, necessarily positive representations of yourself. So definitely working with the Anita Cornwell collection has been an incredible opportunity. Um, and I feel like it is so generative. Her thoughts, her stories, her life is this amazingly generative space for myself and I imagine for so many other Black queer people. Um, so that work is necessarily, I feel like, activist work and the work of William Way in making this collection available and the collection of other queer people of color. That visibility is activism. You know, there's also so many other groups that make archives into activism. I think of the work of the Black Lesbian Archives, Archives for Black Lives in Philadelphia, the early Caribbean Digital Archives, um, Digital Paxton. There are so many resources online now that sort of combine the spaces of advocating for our lives while also reimagining our pasts and understanding our histories. But at the same time, it is definitely um, tense ground <laughs> to work through. So as I'm moving through the field, I'm trying to really have the important conversations that need to be had about how archives are managed, how, who gets to tell our stories, 
and how galleries, libraries, museums, archives can use collections in a way that don't just show people of color what is there, but provide more conversation and actual resources for what narratives and what actual materials have been taken. Thank you so much to both of you for helping us think about the role of the archive in preserving, interpreting, and advocating for queer voices in American life. To learn more about the topics covered in this episode of Voices of Change, please visit the I Am an American digital exhibition. You'll find it at alicedunbarnelson.com. Learn more about the Rosenbach at rosenbach.org or by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Support for I Am an American is provided by the Pennsylvania Abolition Society Endowment Fund of the Philadelphia Foundation. Thank you for listening, and please join us for the next episode of Voices of Change.